John chapter number three, there's enough content in the first 21 verses of John three to last us a year. I won't take a year. I'll just do it in one Sunday morning, but we're going to have to move at a pretty uh, heavy clip this morning, but I believe you can keep up with me. I want to read the first couple of verses, and then after that, we'll pray, we'll have a song, and then we'll, we'll dive in to the content. But let's at least get the introduction here from John chapter number three. Look at verse number one. It says, there was a, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So here we're introduced to this guy named Nicodemus. We're told that he's a few things. One is a Pharisee. So what does it mean that someone's a Pharisee? It means that he's part of the religious elites. This guy is extremely devoted. He's extremely conservative, very separated in his belief, in his practice. He's a strict follower of the Mosaic law. He observes the Sabbath days. He observes the holy days. He tithes. He follows the the dieting laws and the fasting laws. He does all of these things. He's a very religious guy a well-developed conscious, a well-developed moral compass. This is Nicodemus. And we're told that he's also a ruler of the Jews. This would mean that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. This is a group of 70 men who rule over the affairs of the nation of Israel, very similar to our Supreme Court. So this is a very prestigious man. A rabbinical tradition outside of the Bible states that he's one of the three richest men in all of Jerusalem. So Nicodemus is the best kind of person that religion and education and culture can produce. And he comes to Jesus at night. It says in verse two, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So here we're introduced to Jesus. We've seen Jesus through the first two chapters of John very clearly, but here Nicodemus' impression of him is that he was a teacher sent from God. Now, I've had a lot of teachers in my life. I don't know. I've had a lot of good teachers even. I don't think I would have ever categorized one of them as a teacher sent from God. I would have categorized a few of them as a teacher sent from the devil, but never from God, you know? Why are you giving me so much homework? Why can you not explain this to me? Like, didn't you go to school for this? I think you should teach a little bit better, but never that level. But here is Nicodemus and says, you're a teacher sent from God. Now I'm relatively interested at the lesson plans that the teacher from God has. I don't know if you are, but I wanna know what that that teacher has to say. I wanna tune into that and see what that is. And Nicodemus' rationale for this is because you've done miracles. No man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. We don't know exactly what all of these miracles were, but this is very early on in Jesus' ministry, and Jesus is working miracles, and Nicodemus says, this kind of solidifies for me the fact that I'm, I'm leaning into the idea that you're the Messiah, that you're sent from God, and that I want to listen to what you have to say. Now, verse number three is going to begin to unpack from the greatest teacher of all, the greatest lesson of all, honestly. And that lesson is going to take us all the way through verse 21. Well, what we're going to find in this passage is that Jesus, the master teacher, is going to follow a very normal pattern of teaching. Here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to teach a concept 
then he's going to review for clarity, then he's going to test for comprehension. Now, if you've ever taught, you know that this is a very normal pattern. Introduce the concept, teach it, back up, review it from, for clarity, come at it from a different angle, and then ultimately, you wanna test that for comprehension, and Jesus is going to do this with Nicodemus. So here's Nicodemus who comes to Jesus by night. Theologians have raced their motors for a lot of years to try to speculate as to why Nicodemus came at night. The bottom line is we don't know it could be as simple as he just couldn't sleep. Here's what's really important to know from this. This is the first episode of, of Nick at Night right here. This is Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And he says, you're a teacher, rabbi sent from God, teach me. And Jesus starts with just the concept that he's going to teach. And it's right out of the gate. He puts it right up front. And Jesus says in verse three, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verily, verily, this is mentioned all the time through John's gospel, and this means I swear to you in advance of the truthfulness of what I am going to say to you. Jesus is affirming up front that what, is he, what he's going to declare is in fact valid and truthful, and he says, here's the concept. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's our concept that we're going to work through through this, this whole morning. So this, this morning really is a fastball right down the middle. It's, a not, it's not a complicated sermon. It's all about this. If you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus, according to Jesus, needed to do something to see the kingdom of God. What does see the kingdom of God mean? Does that mean that spiritual eyesight? What does this mean? The simplest way I could put it would be that you are going to see eternity. Nicodemus would have thought of it in terms of, I will be present at the resurrection of the dead at the last time to go into eternity with God. This is, you could say it this way, if you want to go to heaven, that would be a very valid way to say this. That Nicodemus, if you want to spend eternity with God, if you want to go to heaven, then you must be born again. So Jesus is telling the very cultured, very religious, very financially well-off man that he needed to do something. So this is as fine a specimen of a natural man as you could ever get, rich, respected, religious, a ruler, yet that was not good enough. And Jesus is telling him, you have to do something, and that is to be born again. Now, to be born again is actually synonymous with being a Christian. So our culture as a whole would not understand that. And they would think of being born again or a born again Christian as like this, this group of Christianity that's like the elite or the super zealous, that's the born again type of Christian, right? That's how kind of the culture at large would, would, perf would say this if you listen to the news or something like that. But that's not at all biblically accurate. To be a born-again Christian is saying the same thing twice, biblically speaking. It's like saying, I'm going to the tooth dentist, or she's a female lady. You're just stating the same thing in different terminology. So he tells Nicodemus to be Christian, to be born again. You're you going to have to do something. Here's what this looks like. So being born again is not turning over a new leaf. It is not just improving yourself a little bit. Being born again is actually the implantation of new life. Being born again is being transformed at the heart level by the Spirit of God so that you can know God and live for Him and build into His kingdom. To be born again is not saying, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm religious. I read my Bible. I go to church. I pray. I've been baptized. I've been confirmed. I've taken sacraments. I've whatever. 
I do this and I'm a pretty good person, but you know what? I could use an extra infusion of divine help and I just could use Jesus to top me off. This is not supplementation. This is not even reformation. This is transformation. This is new life being placed in a person. I'll put it this way. This is not Chip and Joe's fixer-upper. This is I move out of my house into brand new construction. That's what this is. This is, this is a whole new something that Nicodemus is being introduced to. And he says in verse number four, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus, how is this possible? I'm gonna crawl back into my mother's womb. You ever play a game when you read the Bible? Like what if Jesus said a different answer? Sometimes I read scripture and I think, what if he would have said, yeah, like I can do miracles. I'm gonna make that happen again. That would be the worst news ever, wouldn't it, ladies? Like, please, no, do not say yes to that question, Jesus. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're struggling to understand this concept, Nicodemus. Let me try to help you. He'll elaborate a little, verse five. Verily, verily, there it is again. This is gonna be true. I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, if you've been around church any length of time, inevitably you've heard people strain at what this means. And I'm, I don't have time today to list all of the possible options of what this could mean. I'll tell you what I think it means. I believe, I wouldn't take a bullet for it, but I'm, I'm pretty firm in that I believe that Jesus is contrasting first birth and second birth, that the physical birth and the spiritual birth, that Nicodemus you just asked me, do I have to go through a natural physical birth again? No, if you're born of water, if a woman goes into labor, a sure sign that the baby is coming is if the water breaks, that which is born of water, physical birth, that which is born of spirit, spiritual birth, that which is born of flesh, natural birth, that which is born of the spirit of spirit, spiritual birth. And he's contrasting the two, the first and the second birth. And, and he says very clearly to him, hey, kind of in these terms, did you get to this earth without a physical birth? No. So are you going to get to heaven without a spiritual birth? No. You need to be born again. Verse number seven, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. So I don't know what Nicodemus was looking at Jesus like, but apparently he's befuddled. Apparently there's a look on his face that he is just not getting what Jesus is saying. So Jesus says to him, look, don't look at me all stupid. Like you're not understanding what I'm telling you. Don't, don't marvel that I said this to you. If you've ever done any education with your four-year-old, if you're an educator and you've taught school for any length of time, maybe you've done training at work, you get where Jesus is at. Where you're trying to teach a concept to someone and it's just not clicking. Like it, they're, they're, they're spinning their wheels, they're trying, they're, they're making an effort to get it, to grasp the concept, to try to understand the, what you're introducing to them, but it's just not getting there. And Jesus is there with Nicodemus right now, trying to get him to understand this, but this is a vital concept to learn. Like you need to know this because this is a matter of heaven or hell, life or death. Like this is a truth that you don't wanna miss. So Jesus is going to continue in verse number eight, and he says this, the wind blows where it listeth, or the wind blows where it wants, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, you know the wind that you can tell when it's there, you sense the effects, you feel it, but it's not under your control. 
You don't tell it where to go. You don't, tell, you don't exactly know where it came from. So likewise is the Spirit of God that when the Spirit of God moves on the hearts of men, He moves in ways that we fully don't comprehend or understand. But yet we know He's there and we can feel His presence and we can sense the effects of that. I do want to take just a brief 90-second timeout for a moment for those that have been around church a while and you've studied the Bible and tried to wrestle with some of these things. If you're newer to faith or to church, some of what I say may go over, over your head, which is okay. I don't mind that. We'll call time in in just a moment. But here is described the work of the Spirit. And in a few verses, we're going to see the choice to believe or not to believe and the onus being put on Nicodemus that he needs to make a choice. And you see both of these the work of God in the hearts of men, bringing about salvation and regeneration, and the choice of the individual to believe and put their faith married together in the same text. Now, I've heard people try to teach one to the exclusion of the other and try to say that, you know what? We don't even need to pray for them to be saved because it's really not up to God. It's up to them. They have to choose which I would say you're divorcing one of these concepts from the other. I've also heard people say, we don't need to encourage people or implore people to believe and, and put the choice in their lap because ultimately it's up to God and they don't really have a choice in the matter at all, which is divorcing one of these from the other. Both of these are married together. They're two sides of the same coin and they're linked in, a, in an admittedly rather mysterious way, but they're interwoven. And you can't pull them apart and act like they exist without each other. Now, I do not have time this morning to do a topical study on which one of these comes first. And is it the regeneration that the Spirit brings? Is it our choice? I don't have time to get into that. The point this morning is that these two are completely tangled up with each other when it comes to God moving and working on the hearts of men and men choosing to believe that both of those are woven together and you can't rip them apart. You can't. And the text even says, we don't even fully understand what the, what the wind does or the spirit does. We just know when it's there. So to act like we could fully comprehend all of this and it's not mysterious at all would be unbiblical and wrong, I believe, but they're linked together. So time in, okay? Time in, we'll get back to this. What's Jesus doing? Very simple. Jesus is attempting to teach Nicodemus about being born again, not just becoming a nicer person, but becoming a new creature, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said that Jesus isn't trying to fix the roof on your cottage. Jesus is trying to make you into a castle. And that's what Jesus is after here in this, what is all this born again stuff? It's, it's the implantation of new life into somebody spiritually. Verse number nine, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? He still, he still doesn't understand and he admits as much. I'm confused. Jesus' response is a little bit sarcastic. He answered and said, aren't thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Nicodemus, I'm pretty sure you're supposed to be the teacher of the Bible and I'm the subject of the Bible. So wouldn't you kind of understand this or wouldn't you know this? Which tells us a really valid truth. You can know the Bible and not know Jesus. And the Bible's all about Jesus, but you can know it, memorize it, debate it, be able to talk theology with people, be in church, Sunday school, whatever it may be, and not know Jesus and not be saved. That's very possible. It is very possible to go to church and to pray and to be baptized and to go through the religiosity and the motions and to memorize massive chunks of Scripture and not be born again and not be saved. And that's where Nicodemus is at at this moment. 
He, he does not get it. Verse 11 and 12. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. There it is again. Here comes some truth, buddy. I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Nicodemus, you know the facts. Nicodemus, you say that you know. You say that you see, but you still aren't getting it. And I'm bottom shelfing this for you, buddy. And it's, it's just not clicking, pal. Like, I'm trying to put this down here for you to get it, and, and I'm not going to be able to give you more. If you can't add two plus two, we're not going to calculus. Like, we got to stay right here and understand this concept for a little bit. I can't move on to bigger and better things. We just got to park it here and help you understand what I'm talking about. So here stands Nick, taken back, a bit dazed, a bit confused, head spinning, wondering what exactly is he talking about here. I'm trying to wrestle with this. And thankfully, it doesn't end here. Thankfully, Jesus, the master teacher, doesn't walk away and say, hey, I taught you the concept. Adios, bud. I'm, I'm out of here. Jesus, actually like a good teacher, he's going to back up and he's going to review this for clarity. And he's going to try to come at this from another angle to help him understand what is all this born again stuff and spiritual life mean. And he's going to come at it from a different way. Look at verse number 13. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven even the Son of Man which is in heaven. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite designation for himself. He calls himself that more than any other title. It's a reference to Daniel. It's a reference to his deity. And he says very clearly that I am the one who has descended from heaven. I'm God in the flesh. I am Emmanuel, God with us. This is me. Meaning that Jesus has the authority to speak of heavenly things. He, he can talk about what it means to enter into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or not because he's descended from heaven. He is the son of man. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have booked that flight, right? If I have heaven and the option is to go to, go to earth, personally, that's unappealing, right? Heaven versus earth. That's like moving from Western Pennsylvania to West Virginia. That's a significant downgrade, right? I'm just, all the, all the West Virginia people in the room, I'm just kidding. I love you, but that is not a fair analogy. You would have to go heaven to hell to accurately get what it would be. I'm, ju I'm just kidding. I'm ju I literally, I'm kidding. I know like 5% of you are from West Virginia. Go Mountaineers, right? Go Mountaineers. Nothing says we're cool like an overweight guy with a raccoon hat and a musket, but it's, it's a great place. Jesus says, I, I, I do, who's West Virginia, are you any proud of West Virginia? Come on, all right, I love you. I love you. I'm having fun at your expense, but I love you. Matt, you're from West Virginia. I forgot you, part of your life was in West Virginia. It explains a lot. Um, <laughs> he's he's going to get me back. Um, this is Jesus saying, I came from heaven to earth. This is a very exclusive claim. Jesus in no uncertain terms is saying, I'm not just a master teacher. I'm not just sent from God. I'm God come down and I'm, I can tell you about this. So listen up as I review this and try to attack it from a different angle. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. So this is a story that Nicodemus would have not only known, but probably memorized. The story of Moses while people are dying, being instructed to lift up this, 
bronze serpent on a pole, and those that looked with eyes of faith to the serpent would be miraculously healed in some inexplicable way. This is still something that is very prevalent in our culture. If you've looked on the side of an ambulance or you maybe on a paramedic vest or something, you'll see a pole with a serpent wrapped around it still today as a symbol of healing. And Jesus is now referencing and making sense of, you know, why was this crazy thing where you had to look at the serpent and you would be healed? Well, this Nicodemus was all pointing to me in the same way that it's, it's kind of bizarre and unbelievable that I could look to this and be miraculously healed. So to the cross where Jesus says, so the son of man must be lifted up saying, I'm going to be lifted up. I will be put on a pole or a cross and those that look to me will find healing, will find life. It is bizarre to look to a, to a snake and be healed on a, on a stick. It's also kind of bizarre to look and say the cross is going to accomplish our redemption. But in God's infinite wisdom, he used the death and the weakness of a cross and suffering to provide for us healing in life. Like that's awesome. That's something humanly we would have never thought of. But this is Jesus saying, that's me. Lifted up, verse number 15. Why will this happen? Why will I be lifted up? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The grandest of all truths. The grandest. If you will believe in me, the Son of Man lifted up on the cross, if you will put your faith there, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. You will be born again by the Spirit of God. Have eternal life. Have everlasting life. Enter into the kingdom of God. If this isn't clear enough, I'll bottom shelf it. This is saying heaven versus hell. Perish versus life. Going into the kingdom of God or not. Believe on me, the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. Now this also makes sense as to why he would have used birth as a picture of what it meant to enter into salvation. Because when a baby is born, it's a lot of things, but it's not all flowers and roses and pretty. If you've ever been in a room when a child has been born, joy is ultimately coming down the road, but that's a gruesome experience. What is happening physically in birth? The suffering and the pain and the anguish and the potential death of one is providing life to another. Yes? We live in a day where we have epidurals and, and anesthesia and, and emergency C-sections, but especially in Nicodemus' day, where the pain would have not been lessened, I mean, barely, maybe a little bit of something, but barely. In many women, there is no emergency C-section in, in a sanitary room where this can, you can be sewn up and recover. Many women died to provide birth to their young ones. And this is a perfect picture of what being born again is, the, the price that one pays, Jesus, and that his suffering and his pain and his anguish, and not just the risk of death, but knowing for certain that he would die and be lifted up on a cross, that that death is providing life to the rest of us. This is why Jesus can say in the garden, minutes before Jesus, Judas comes to betray him, Jesus can turn and we'll be here in about six months or so. We'll be in John 16. But Jesus will say, a woman when she is in travail has sorrow because her hour has come. When that moment comes where life is going to be given to another, there's travail and sorrow. 
But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. Right? Ever live that? All of the suffering and the pain. I know a huge chunk of the room, you've been through this. I've just kind of been an observer and just kind of trying to help my wife through the birth of our children. But you know what it's like to go through all of that and then to have the joy that comes after that that somehow trumps the pain and all of the anguish and all of the sorrow. And Jesus, minutes before he's betrayed and led to his cross, says, this is me I'm, and my hour has come. I'm going into the pain and the anguish, but I'm looking forward to the joy that's going to come from life. This is why Hebrews can say, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? What joy was set before him? The life. The fact that spiritual life could be given to so many because of the suffering and the death of another. And Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to see this, verse 16. No single verse in all of the Bible sums up the redemption story any better, but this verse can't be divorced from the context. He Goes right into it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's God's redemptive purpose in Jesus Christ. God loved the world. Religion says God loves my kind. Follow the rules, do the stuff, keep up with this, and God will love you. The Bible says God loves everyone. He is global in both his passion and compassion. And because he loved the world, he gave. True love always gives. He gave. He, God is a giver and a forgiver, both. God so loved that he gave his only begotten son so that if anyone, whosoever, anyone will believe in him, will not perish hell, but have everlasting life, heaven. If you'll turn to him in faith and fully believe in Jesus Christ, then you are given heaven. You're gifted by the grace of God through the death of his son. You are gifted the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is after. This is what all of the Bible really boils down to is this truth. That's why I don't mind this morning having almost no application other than this because this is what the Bible at its core is all about. Man is lost and in need of a redeemer, in need of redemption, and we cannot earn our way, work our way, will our way, wish our way into heaven. It doesn't matter how much good you do. It doesn't matter how, how, how hard you try to get your works to earn you right standing with God. You don't stand a chance, and nor do I. So Jesus Christ comes and dies for our sins, and if you will place your faith in him, and solely him, and not in yourself, then you can have eternal life. Verse 17, in case 15 and 16 weren't clear enough, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I love that verse. That verse guides my preaching so much. Jesus didn't come to condemn. Jesus came to offer life and to give the good news. My goal as, as a pastor and a preacher is not to beat you up and, and to take you through the ringer and condemn you and put you on a guilt trip all the time. My goal is to point out where you may have deviated from Scripture and where you're wrong very clearly, but to say there's an offer of life in this life and an offer of eternal life, that there's a better way and there's good news and to follow that path. And this is saying very, very clearly, this isn't about condemnation. 
This is about love. This is about redemption. I want to save people from their sins. I'm not willing that any should perish. I want all to come to redemption. I want to save people. That's the heart of God. So here's Nicodemus. Initially, dazed, confused, befuddled, taken back. Jesus says, okay, I gave you the concept. Let me back it up. Let me come in a different way. Remember Moses? Remember the servant? That's me. Lift it up. Believe in me. And he goes through it again to try to re-explain new birth, being born again, and comes at it. But we don't exactly know what Nicodemus says here. At this point, Jesus is talking, and there's no, there's no black text for the next couple verses. It's all Jesus. But I think that Jesus tries to give him a test of comprehension. And tries to say, okay, I've gave you the concept. I reviewed it for clarity. Now let me tell you this. And if you can pass this test, you've got it. If you can understand this and you can, you can answer these questions, then you've understood it fully. And you comprehend what I'm telling you. Verse number 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Amen for that. But he that believeth not is condemned already. That's why Jesus doesn't need to condemn because it's already there. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now this, this gets heavy, I'm going to tell you. It gets heavy, but it's, it's straight up. Earth is a rebel planet gone astray. All are condemned naturally already because of our sin. You say, Pastor, I mean, I have sinned. I'm not perfect, yeah, but I'm not that bad. I mean, I know some other people who've really sinned, like they're big sinners. I haven't done that much. I mean, I think that I'll get to heaven one day. Say, God, yeah, I did some wrong, but look at my good. I mean, it's, it's kind of good. I mean, I need a little bit of Jesus on top to help me, but isn't it okay? The Bible is abundantly clear that that is not the case. It's not. It's not. Those say those, all of us who have all sinned, we all have, are already under condemnation. And Romans 3 makes it clear that one day we will all stand before God and we will stand guilty is what it says. And it says every mouth will be stopped. There will be no excuses. There will be no wiggling out of it. There will be no hall passes given out. There's, there's no way to get out of it. And you'll know abundantly clear on that day that compared to mankind, you may be a bit, a bit better than them. You may call yourself holy, but compared to God and compared to his son, not a chance. You will stand woefully inadequate. And those, this verse says, who do not believe on Christ are condemned, and those who do believe on Christ are not condemned. You say, Pastor, I just, I can't believe that. I can't believe that a good God who loves people would send somebody to hell condemnation and hell comes because we row our own boat. That's what this is teaching. You can't build your house on the train tracks and then get mad when the train track, when the train comes and smashes your house into a million pieces. You built your house on the track. A train's coming. That's what this is saying. Those who are sinners, those who are wrong, which is all of us, without Christ, your house is built on the track and you can bet on it that a train comes one day. And this is meant to teach us that Jesus didn't come to condemn. Jesus didn't come to say, I'm, I'm here to, to guilt trip you. I'm here to tell you, you are wrong. You should admit that. I am waving flags and shooting flares in the air, trying to get you to come over to me and say, get off the track. Come follow me. I have life. I have heaven as a free gift. It doesn't get any better than that. 
This is God saying, I love you so much, I'm trying to pull you away from your condemnation, but you don't want to get away from it. You're rowing your own boat. Verse number 19. In case that wasn't clear enough, here it comes again. This is the condemnation. That light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That, that's, it's blunt. Jesus came. The light of the gospel has come. But men loved their darkness. Women loved their darkness. Say, Pastor, why do people say no to Jesus? Because they love their sin. Because I love my sin. And you have and do sometimes love your sin. See, no, love is good, sin's bad. Those two don't go together. They sure do. You ever scratched your head at someone who just wasted away their life? They had a great business or they had a great marriage. They had a great family. They had great opportunities. And they did something that you looked at and said, that was so stupid. You traded all of that for this pitiful fleeting whatever that was why would you throw that all away why would you cheat why would you embezzle why would you do that why? look at the trade-off it doesn't make sense logically sin isn't logical sin is lustful sin is i love i want i crave i desire and it makes you do stupid things because we love it and this is saying Jesus came, but there were those that looked at him and said, no, I don't want you. I want my sin. I love my sin. No, thank you. Verse 20. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Those that love their sin and don't want to see it for what it is, reject the light of the gospel. They reject Christ. Why? Because it would mean seeing things differently. It would mean changing my life. And coming to faith in Christ and following him does mean changing your sin in your life. It does. But I love my, my life the way it is, Pastor. I have a few bad habits. I have some skeletons in my closet. Sure, I would be ashamed if people knew all the thoughts that I thought, but I think I'm okay. I'm doing all right. No. What is John saying? Verse 21, he says the opposite, that those that are born again, those that know Christ, they want to step into the light. Here's the best way I could illustrate it. You are by yourself. You're on a mountain alone. It's getting dark outside. It's 33 degrees. You have no gear. You have no tent. You're in the middle of nowhere. And you're feeling like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through the night or the next day or what's going to happen here. And you hear off in the distance the twirl of helicopter rotors. You see a light starting to shine kind of through the mountain and the trees. You even hear someone on a bullhorn start to call out your name. We're looking for you. What do you do? Depends on where you're at. If you're a fugitive and you're guilty, and you're trying to run from that, and you don't want to face sentencing, you hide from that light. Even though you may die, even though things aren't great at the moment, you don't want to step in the light. Because you don't want to surrender, and you don't want to say, I'm guilty, take me in. Now, if you're lost, 
and you want to be found and you recognize, I'm in a jam. I'm not getting out of this. I could die here. I'm not saving myself anymore. I've been wandering around trying to figure this out and I'm deeper and deeper and deeper. You start waving, find me, come get me. You want that light. You'll step into that light gladly, right? It all depends on where you're at. That's what those verses are saying. Depending on some people, I'm guilty, but I'm running and I'm a fugitive. I don't want to be in that light. I don't want to face sentencing. I don't, I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. No, I'm going to do my own thing. They run from the light. Others step in and say, I'm guilty. I'm lost. I admit. Come find me. I surrender. Help me. Send the ladder down. Save me, please. One of those two hearts. Now, one, one is prideful. One is humble. It does take some humility. But this is all meant to give you a bit of a litmus test. You say, what's the test? I'll, I'll put it in a very simple way. What these verses, 18, 19, 20, 21, just said is this. If you can answer these questions, you get what he's teaching. Doesn't mean that you're saved. You may still have to believe, but you at least understand it cognitively. What or why did I used to be under condemnation? Or why am I currently under condemnation? Why would someone be declared guilty by God? Now the opposite of that, how does someone escape condemnation? How does someone not be declared guilty but be declared righteous? If you can answer those two, why would I be under condemnation? How could I escape condemnation? How would I gain eternal life instead? Answer those questions, you get it. That's the test. Now in case you can't answer them, I'll give you the answer and we'll be done. The very simple reason on why someone is under condemnation from God is because of our sin. Because of the wrong we have done. Could be this big, could be that big, could be to the ceiling. I don't know you, but I know that you've sinned. That's why someone is under condemnation. How do I get out from that? I turn in faith to Jesus and his cross and I put my trust in him and him alone and I cry out and say, I cannot save myself. I cannot do this myself. I stand no chance. I shift my trust fully to you. And when that is done, someone is, I'll use a lot of synonyms, born again. They're gifted the kingdom of God. They get heaven. They get eternal life. All meant to teach the same thing because I put my faith in Jesus Christ. So the question is, it's very simple. This is it. Have you believed? That's, that's what this text is trying to teach us. I could pull out a million other things, but that's what the text is, meant to, is designed to teach. Have you believed? So yeah, I believe, you know, I believe that Jesus came. I believe he was a person. I believe that he was a prophet. I believe that he died. I believe that he rose. I'm not talking about that you just tip your hat or yeah, I believe that. I'm talking about have you transferred all of your belief, all of your faith away from you, away from your religious works, away from your baptism, away from whatever it is, onto Jesus and believed on him solely and said, I don't stand a chance, but I put my faith in you. And if you, if you have, the only takeaway I have for you this morning is, is as we conclude, to pray for someone who has not. And to call out over the next couple minutes as we conclude and just say, Jesus, hear the name or names of people that are close to me that need you. I want them to step into the light and call out their name. If you have not, just believe. 
He wants you to. He loves you. He came to redeem you. He's offering, he's waving flags through his word this morning, shooting flares, trying to say, step into the light and just surrender and say, send me down the ladder. I'm toast. I need you. And put your faith and trust in him.